Hi, my name's Michael and welcome to Today Dreamer, a podcast and YouTube channel that examines the interplay between inner work and outer work. Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices to help you find a deeper sense of clarity, develop your focus and take meaningful action. I hope you love the show. Welcome to the very first episode of the Today Dreamer podcast. I firstly wanted to just extend my deepest gratitudes for everyone that's come across through the transition that's stuck with the show. And I also want to say thank you for any new listeners. Welcome and thank you. Thank you for being open to give the show a chance. Today's guest is Peter Russell. And Peter is someone that studied mathematics and theoretical physics directly under Stephen Hawking. He went to India to study meditation and Eastern philosophy under the Maharishi. And once he returned, he took up the first ever research post offered in Britain on the psychology of meditation. So he's an incredible human. And the conversation we had was three months ago, right before COVID-19 kicked in. And the discussion was so pertinent and so relevant to what is going on right now that I thought it would be the perfect episode to kick things off with. What else can I tell you about Peter? Well, he is 27,021 days old. I'm actually 10,969 days old. So I'm nearly 11,000 days old. You can check out your age in days on his website, peterrussell.com. Uh, it's it's just an interesting way to look at your life and it's a shift in perspective that I really like. I've really appreciated the way that you articulate the really complex concepts in a way that's kind of easily digestible, I guess. And that was one of the reasons I really wanted to get you onto the show, to be able to share some of that knowledge and wisdom with everyone listening. Uh, it seems to me that from a young age, you've you've had this incredible thirst for knowledge and you were asking yourself philosophical questions, you know, right from the beginning. Um, would you be able to kind of walk me through the beginning of this journey for yourself and, and how it all started? Yes, I suppose it was when I was at school as a teenager. I suppose that's where the philosophical questions started. Um, and the two things that fascinated me were the whole um, brain-mind relationship, you know, does, you know, about consciousness in the brain, does the brain create consciousness or not? What is the relationship? I mean, that fascinated me. And we, I talk about that with my other school friends and the whole free will determinism problem, just going over that, you know, is there really free will or is it all determined? And we're looking at, you know, very sort of simple schoolboy type approaches, but that's where my, I think I was interested in philosophy back then. And also I sort of had this interest in, in yoga. But then, of course, we saw yoga as sort of fakirs who are able to lie on beds of nails or do very strange things like putting needles through their cheeks. It, that was what we saw yoga as then, you know, not seeing what yoga really was and where it was coming along. So I was interested in this stuff and just the mind generally way back then. And then I, I went to university and I was studying mathematics and then theoretical physics. I loved it and I was good at it. I'd sort of come top in my class in it. And so it was a natural thing to be studying. And yet the sort of, in the background, there was this sort of philosophical leaning and this, this interest in consciousness, which was always there. And I really came to a point where I realized that however much theoretical physics I did, how fascinating it was, and however much it would tell me about, you know, the universe, the physical universe, 
it had absolutely nothing to say about consciousness or why there was consciousness in the universe in the first place. And it struck me as somewhat paradoxical that all science takes place in the human mind. You know, the actual, the theorizing, all, all of that, the conclusions, the modeling, the understanding is all happening in consciousness. And yet none of it has anything to say about consciousness itself. And it struck me as this was a really weird paradox. And that eventually took me into um, looking at meditation. I was looking more, not from a spiritual side then, more as just um, a way to understand consciousness better. I realized that sticking electrodes on the skull was not how you understood consciousness, but it, consciousness was a subjective first-hand thing. And so the way to understand consciousness was getting in there personally. So I was interested in what you know, the spiritual adepts, the monks, the yogis had done in the mind. And so I got interested in meditation. Initially, that was TM, Transcendental Meditation. I looked around a bit, but that was what really worked for me. And that eventually took me out to India, where I was studying meditation with the Maharishi. And that was really what got me going then. And I think I realized two things that sort of then became important for the rest of my work. And one was that there was something to spirituality after all. I mean, at, as a budding scientist, I totally rejected religion as a kid. Um, it just seemed a load, load of weird mumbo jumbo that didn't have any relevance to the current times. And I realized when I was in India, there was, there was something, there was a common core, there's something that had given life to all the great religions. And I became fascinated by what was that essence, that spiritual essence that had given rise to the religions, but it got lost over time. And just working on, and I suppose that's been part of my life's work, trying to distill out that essence and present it in sort of contemporary terms. And also what happened was the realization that behind all our problems, or nearly all our problems, whether they're personal, social, environmental, political, is human thinking, human decision, and basically the human ego and how we get stuck in egoic modes of thinking and seeing that what all the great traditions were talking about in one way or another was how to get out of that egoic, materialistic, self-centered mode of consciousness to a much more open, um, unified way of looking at the world. And so that became the motivation for doing this work as well. So that, Do you feel like being aware of being aware of this intellectually um, can somehow affect the experience? Um, you mean being aware of the situation, how the ego plays out, you mean? Yes. Yes, I, th I think it does because you begin to, you be the intellectual understanding gives you a framework to begin to understand your own experience. This is what I found. I began to see how that was working in myself and it shed shed more light or more awareness on my own thinking patterns and how I got, how I would get stuck in more egoic thinking. Do yeah. you find that now that you've done all this work on, you know, self-exploration and, and just exploration in general, that it's kind of had an impact on the way you, you think and the way you're aware in this present moment? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, and yet it's hard to pinpoint because it's become so much just part of my 
ordinary way of living. Mm. Um, yeah. I suppose, I mean, part of what, you know, my practice these days is continually catching myself getting caught up in some thought story or other. And what I like to do is just as many times as possible during the day is just whenever I notice it, just to pause. And in that pausing, just coming back to that quality of beingness that's always there, that sense of presence, whatever you want to call it, the the underlying self, the pure being. We can give it many different names, but just coming back to that. And as we come back to that, there's that sense of, ah, here I am. And just realizing I got totally lost again. So it's almost like a practice of continually finding myself again in the day. And that just becomes nothing exceptional or sensational. It's just, you know, it's just part of life. It seems like quite a simple do thing to do, sorry, to pause. And is there a particular process that you use to to press that, that pause button? It it is so simple. I mean Yes, there is a simple practice. I mean, it is so simple. I think this is part of the problem is we make things so complicated and so many spiritual teachings get make things so complicated. It's just it's just it's just making that choice. It's just choosing, noticing first of all you have to notice, you know, oh I'm caught up in some story, you know, I'm talking talking to myself about whatever it is, something I have to do or political situation or what somebody said, is when I catch it and realize it's happening just choosing not to continue with that thought. And it's actually very, very easy. I mean, the thought may come back again, you know, 10 seconds later, but it's just when you catch it, it's just in that moment, just choosing, I'm not going to follow this any further. And nothing else, you don't have to, that is the pause. You don't have to do mm. anything to pause. It's actually the opposite. It's choosing not to do something. Is it, is it quite tricky to recognize it, though, in the first place? I feel like for me and for some people that I know, that's that's kind of the, the bit that gets a little bit um, difficult or, or can't isn't as easy as I'd like it to be sometimes is, is noticing um, those moments or those that you're caught up in one of those stories in the first place. Yes, it, it is. And it's, it's still challenging. I can go a long time you know, without noticing. I think for me, that's where having practice meditation quite a lot in my life has allowed me to become a lot more familiar with that process because in meditation I mean the sort of meditation I'm interested in what you're noticing is you're doing this in the meditation you're noticing whenever whenever you drifted off on some thought you're just leaving the thought behind not following it anymore and just coming back to the present moment and just doing that time and time again and so in life what happens is i've experienced that in meditation so it becomes easier to recognize that in life and so it's really the sort of the practical side of of, of meditation like meditation is or the daily side like sitting to meditate is like the intensive practice and then you take that practice out into life so you were talking about so if we rewind a little bit yeah. on your journey and and we go back to the point where you were you're asking yourself these questions like free will determinism at, which is pretty much like the choices we make are they really based on our own free will or or whether they're predetermined by our kind of individual conditioning uh, these are quite big questions and um, you know just 
and they're kind of questions that don't really have an answer or, or, or it's very hard to come to kind of some kind of a conclusion. But I guess by asking them, uh, we're exploring the idea, which which seems like it's a good thing. Um, well, I'm not sure good or bad, but it seems like it's it's something that could, you know, further us on this journey of, of, um, of awareness. You're, you also worked in, in some kind of fashion, one-on-one, in some kind of a mentorship program with Stephen Hawking, studying mathematics, and you're into science as well. Um, is that right? Yes. Um, well, Stephen Hawking, he was my supervisor at Cambridge. Um, at Cambridge, this is Cambridge, England, um, the way the, the academic system works is every student has a one-on-one relationship with a either a professor or a postgraduate student who be, you, you meet them once a week and they basically are guiding you in, in their, your studies. And it changes each year, so you, you get a variety of people over the course of your education. And I was very fortunate you know, to be given Stephen Hawking as my supervisor for a while. And he was then, he, he was only two, three years older than me. He just finished his PhD. He just finished his early work on black holes for his PhD. So he was still a, a young student. He could still walk and talk then, although his illness was just coming on. But I find so, it fascinating. I find it fascinating that you sorry to interrupt that you came from this this background of I guess science and mathematics, and it's led you down now this path of more like meditation and spirituality. Yes, I think. But as I said, I just found the science was was incomplete. It didn't. It wasn't really answering the questions I was really fascinated by. And I'm still interested. I mean, I'm still keeping up my reading of theoretical physics and stuff in mathematics and science generally. I, I love science and I'm always reading it. I mean, I've been subscribing to the New Scientist magazine since it started when I was a child. I mean, it's like, I, I love science, but I'm also even more fascinated by consciousness and what is consciousness and how do how do we actually how do we liberate and awaken our own consciousness that seems to me the most important thing and the older i get the more important that becomes so so back around 1967 you jumped in a vw bus and i remember you saying that you, you drove to india right to further your knowledge yeah what was the what was the catalyst for that decision and 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 like what led you down that path coming from that scientific mathematical background? Well, that was, by this time, it was actually 1969. By this time, I'd started meditation. I got interested in meditation and wanted to explore it more. And there was a teacher training course happening in Rishikesh in India. And I wanted to be there. And yeah, this was the late 60s. And that's the way you got to India. You drove over land. <laughs> and so, yeah, we we drove out over that fascinating journey um, just driving driving through countries which are now totally different like Iran was totally Afghanistan you know was a totally different country then very friendly very different you know now you think very dangerous to be there but it was a wonderful place and the people there I loved can you tell me a little bit more about your experience um, on that journey because it sounds like quite an adventure it was um, there were many little things um, I mean, just little things. I mean, like being in a country, countries where, you know, the language, you don't understand the language, you don't understand the writing, the culture, everything's different. I remember, you know, just drawing up to get gas at a gas station. And all you do is, all I could do is, you know, the guy comes out, 
and he, he fills it up and you watch these numbers go round on the dial and you don't know what it means. You don't know how much you've got or how much money you've spent <laughs> and you don't know how much you owe him. And so you just hold out a bunch of money in your hands and let him take what, let him take what he wants. <laughs> you know, and that to me is, that's trust. That's trust, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I had never any feeling they were, you know, shortchanging me or if they did, not much. But, that was trust, little things like that. And another time we were, oh, the bus, we'd broken down in the middle of the desert in Afghanistan on a, and it was a moonlit night and we managed to get it going again. It was like sand in the carburetor or something. And we, we pushed it and got it going again. It drove off down the road into the night to sort of, you know, get the engine warmed up again. It was going to come back and pick us up, but it never did. And obviously it had broken down again further down the road. So three of us are just walking down this road in the middle of the desert, you know, middle of the night. And we came across three Afghani tribesmen sitting there sort of looking after their sheep with their sort of guns over their shoulders, their rifles over their shoulders. We'd heard about, you know, these tribesmen and things. And as we walked closer, you know, clearly, you know, they'd seen us in the moonlight walking down the road. We'd seen them. So there's... <laughs> No turning back to England. We just we just walked on. Hold, what's going to happen here? Walk past them. As we walked past them, they just turned and said salam. We just said salam and walked on. It just struck me as look. Just had three, that moment in time together. Well, yeah, <laughs> three three English guys, young English guys, in the middle of the night, passing three Afghani tribes and just saying peace, peace be with yeah. you. That's yeah. a nice. That's a nice memory, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. Once you, you you arrived uh, uh, and you you were with the Maharishi, what was that? What was that experience like? That was that was amazing. I think that really was that was foundational to I think so much of what I have to teach today. His his teaching was was so so valuable to me. He was. Basically, it was a vitus, what today is called non-dualism. It wasn't called that then. Um, but just, Would you be able to describe non-duality? Um, yes. I mean, non-duality is a direct translation of the word, of the Sanskrit word advaita, which means not to. And the idea of not to is that it doesn't say that everything is one, and people misunderstand that. They think, oh, we're all connected, there's no duality, you know, we have to get beyond male, female, good, bad. It isn't saying that at all. It's saying there is difference. There is male, female, there is good, bad, there is all these differences. There is duality, and there is a, an essence behind that which is not dual, and it's pointing to the non-dual essence. And they... One of the earliest teachings on this in Indian literature, the Upanishads, this, this, this teacher is showing this student, he says, you see these two pots, these two clay pots. These two clay pots are clearly two different pots. They're different, they're different size, different shape. They're two unique pots, very different. And they're each made of clay. So they have the same essence. And he points out, the, the clay isn't affected by being the pot. The, the, the essence of clay stays the same, whatever mm. pot it is. And he ends this discourse with the, with the saying that then became famous, Tatwamasi, that essence, which is the essence of everything, that art thou. And he keeps on pointing out that 
we, the essence of us, which is basically the essence of consciousness, which is that sense of just I amness, you could say, that sense of being aware is common to everybody. What we, you know, what we are aware of, you know, I have different thoughts and feelings and memories that you do. We are very, very different on that level. And yet that sense of being aware, which we call I, that sense of not, not the sort of ego personal I, but that deep sense of I-ness that's always been there is the same for everybody. So it's pointing out that the essence, our innermost essence, is the same. So there is duality and there's a unity at the level of essence. And that, so this was in this was kind of woven into the fabric of what the Maharishi taught. Right. When you were there? Yes, yes, very much. Um, and basically what he was talking about, he would call it the pure self. The pure self is something that's common to everybody, or he would talk about it as the transcendental self, and that's why he called it transcendental meditation. And the idea behind transcendental meditation is you're gradually allowing the mind to become quieter and quieter until all thinking fades away and all mental, all sort of normal mental activity stops, and you're left in what he calls the transcendental state, you have transcended, i.e. gone beyond, transcend means to go beyond, you've gone beyond normal thinking mind, and you are then just experiencing that level of the, the pure self, that, that unified level. Yeah, I heard, I heard, a, I heard uh, Paul McCartney talk about feeling like a, a feather kind of floating over, you know, a, a pipe blowing out. Yeah. theme or something and this this kind of this this state i guess sounds like what you're referring to yes yes it's just i mean it it feels it's it's a sense of deep peace of deep ease the mind is quiet and it's actually it's the it's the thinking mind that, that disturbs us that makes us feel uneasy that makes us feel discontent when the thinking mind has stopped there is this deep sense of peacefulness, ease, it's like a deep sense of deep, deep okayness. It's, it's that level of being. And, and I think the more that comes into your life, and that's the idea of meditation, is the more you can contact that quality in oneself, the more that begins to infuse your life, the less you're going to be trying to find happiness in everything you have or do or experience. That's not to say you don't engage in the world, but the motivation for engaging in the world is not so much to get the next great stimulation, the next great experience. You're engaged in the world in order to live a wholesome life and help others live a wholesome life. So you're kind of just you're just kind of in the state of being, and and that kind of flows on in other areas of your life. Yes. Yes. So yeah. what, what you teach seems to be along the lines of this and, and it, it makes sense that Maharishi was a big influence in your life and, and it seems very different from the classic mindfulness meditation where you're, I guess, focusing on, on a certain thing. Um, but what do you actually do? Um, I know you say that you don't really do anything you, you kind of allow, but how does someone begin this, this journey or this process? Is it as simple as sitting down and just allowing or is there more to it? It's a bit more to it a little bit more but a very important bit it's what I was talking about earlier it's, it's having this intention that whenever you 
realize you've drifted off to come back to to come back to the present moment which is really what you know that's common to mindfulness and and transcendental meditation that basic idea but then with mindfulness it tends to be as you say it's it can easily become focusing on something. You're focusing on your breath or on some sensation or some feeling. And what I encourage people to do is, is not to focus, is not to put is to put no effort into it, is to let let the attention let the attention completely relax. And so it's just it, when you when you notice your thinking is choosing, just making that choice not to follow the thought anymore and then seeing what you notice and immediately the attention comes back into the present moment the thoughts take us out of the past and future you come back into the present and then i think where this differs from mindfulness is rather than you know letting the attention be with your experience in the present whether it's thoughts or i mean not thoughts but breath or sensations but coming back to noticing Noticing how it feels, noticing the ease, the peacefulness, so that your your attention is moving towards this state of being, moving towards the self. Because as you let as you let the attention relax, then you drop back closer to your own true self. You come back closer to the beingness. So the key thing, I mean, the key difference both with TM and with mindfulness. They're about what you do with the attention, where you place the attention. And nearly every other technique is about where you place the attention, whether it's on an inner light or a candle light or a mantra or the breath or whatever. It's where you place the attention. In my practice, it's not about where you place the attention. It's about the quality of the attention. What is the quality of your attention? Is it focused or is it relaxed? And it's about allowing the quality of the attention, wherever it is, it doesn't really matter where it is, wherever the attention may be, allowing it to relax, allowing it to relax. And the more relaxed it becomes, the more you just almost fall back into this this inner state of being. Do you find that you, your practice deepens with the amount of time that you that you you know you go through this process? Yes. Yes, inevitably. I think it's like any practice. The more you practice, the easier it gets. Yes. And and what kind of lengths of time when you were in India? What? How much time would you spend in these uh, meditations? Oh, um, we got up to <laughs> doing a week. <laughs> a week. Twenty-four hours a day for a week. Now that may so is this that may without sound, sleep or it. Uh, sleepiness would come it's like it was interesting we sort of build up gradually and he wanted us to really experience you know these deep states and so it wasn't like what we were doing was a practice where we'd meditate for two or three hours and then pause and maybe you know just do yoga on our own in our rooms in our little cabins do yoga for half an hour and then go back into meditation so it wasn't like one solid meditation but it was a process of alternating meditation with yoga. And then we'd sort of build up in the day and we'd still sort of, we'd break for little, you know, very light meals. But through the night, the idea was you just continued into the night and at times probably, you know, drift off into a sleepy meditation for maybe 
an hour or two in the middle of the night, something like that. But the idea was to continue meditating all all of the all of the waking time, and the sleeping time became very very little, and it was just really sort of in a sleeping in a meditation position more than anything. This is fascinating. And and did you reach? Uh, can you recall like a, a peak experience through this journey? It wasn't really about peak experiences because I think with this sort of meditation, it's not about getting something wow, fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's more just getting more and more familiar with this quality of silence and this, this mm-hmm. inner state of silence. And that's what he wanted was to, was just us to really become familiar with it. So, Do you feel like while you're in this state of silence that uh, lessons come through or realizations arise? Yes, yes, um, but not not so much realizations about you know the nature of the cosmos that sort of thing. The realizations that I've got and that I found are really valuable are realizations about the nature of the mind itself. It's like when you're in this state, you begin to see, for example, how what happens when I get caught up in a thought. It begin you're beginning to see. You begin to see the subtle workings of your own mind. And so it's like it's teaching you that state of quietness is showing you. You're seeing it in that state of quietness. You're seeing what's going on in the mind. I suppose, I mean, an interesting analogy. I hadn't thought of this before, but it's like if, if you're in a room and there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of noise, you know, music and things, people chatting. Meditation is like, you know, the music getting quieter or being turned off, the conversation getting quieter and quieter. And eventually, you know, the room becomes silent. But you may, in that silence, you may hear, you know, the slight water in a radiator or the background, you know, background ticking of something, something very, very quiet you never noticed before. And then in that stillness, you may notice, oh, that's going on. And you notice how that's working. And it's the same thing. In the mind, you, I begin to see how how a slight shift in attitude can create a slight sense of tension and take me out of out of that state of being. Mm. So, but there was that those sorts of realizations that came to me, rather than you know fantastic insights into the nature of the cosmos or what I should be doing in life. Those sorts of things. They come, I think, in in more everyday life. Just but but just by having a more clear mind later in life, outside of meditation, just having a more clear mind when you want to focus on those things, I think it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. And you often speak about that that sense of inner peace or completeness or um, that I guess wanting to feel good ultimately. Um, do you feel like this this kind of a practice moves us closer towards that in any way, or at least um, allows us to uh, stop stop ourselves from preventing that? <laughs> yes, yes. I think I think we get this back to front uh, in our society, or in all, most societies, not just ours. It's. I mean, I think we know that what we're looking for. Ultimately, what we're looking for is to be happy. We can use the word happiness. We can use many different words. We're looking to be happy. We're looking for peace of mind. We don't want to be suffering. We don't want to be in pain. And so you could, when you look at it, when you analyze what we do, 
everything we do, the bottom line, one way or another, is we want to feel better inside. We want to feel more at peace. We want to feel okay. You know, that's why we do most of what we do. E even when we're altruistic, like, you know, helping someone cross the road, we're doing it because, you know, deep down, we, get a, we feel better for doing that. So, so this is the real bottom line, is to feel better. But then where we get it the wrong way around is we think that doing something or having something, you know, buying some new jacket or going to some movie makes us feel better. That's where I think we get it wrong. What's going on is that the natural state of mind, I call it the natural state of mind, the state of being where we're not thinking, we're not worrying, is in its own nature, its own intrinsic nature, is one of being at peace. So the natural state of mind is one of peace, happiness, joy. We use those words. And then when we start thinking, most of our thoughts are about what we need to do in the world in order to make things better for ourselves in one way or another. And so our thoughts contain deep down an element of discontent, an element of tension. And so that inner state of natural contentment is being veiled, is being overshadowed by the thinking which has this state of discontent. And the thinking then says, oh, we've got to go out and do something in the world in order to feel better. And we may feel a bit better for a short time, but then we fall into another discontent. And I think what's actually happening is the opposite. When we when we stop the thinking, then we fall back into contentment. So it isn't so much we need to do what our thinking is telling us. We need to find a way to step out of the thinking. And I, I mean, something that struck me, a very interesting example of how this works is with the internet, with internet shopping. I mean, this is something the gurus of India didn't know about. But, you know, you, you go to buy, you know, whatever it is, a new new sweater or something on the internet and you, you you know you look around and you, you find the right style the right color the right size the right price you do all your research and you finally find the one you want and you hit buy now and that's when you feel good but actually it hasn't arrived yet so it isn't the sweater that's made you feel good in fact, when it arrives, you probably realize it isn't quite the right size or something and you feel bad. But it's that when you press the buy now, you've let go of that thinking that there's something you're wanting. And so the thinking you're wanting something has created a little bit of unease, discontent, the wanting. And then suddenly that wanting is gone and you drop back into feeling at ease. So it isn't that you decided to buy something that makes you happy is having made that decision, you're no longer making yourself unhappy. And it's the complete reverse. And I think this is this is where our whole society has it wrong. Our society says it's what you have, what you do makes you happy, rather than seeing it's the wanting or the having that actually makes us unhappy. That's that's really interesting. I want to come back to, I know you mentioned the internet actually, and, and I know you've got a really interesting kind of point of view on the interconnectedness of of the universe, uh, but I, I just before we go into that, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this one, and I wanted to know if you have any I don't know what the right word is, but do you have any techniques besides this practice um, to 
help you through situations where your mind might um, or the thinking might come into play like this and you recognize it? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yes, there's other things. Um, for example, in where I've got difficult situations with maybe it's something with a person or some issue where I can't, where there's no easy, obvious solution. It usually involves, you know, how to relate or work to, with somebody else or something. Mm -hmm. um, what I what I assume there is, if I can't see if I can't see my way through, it's nearly always because I'm stuck in my way of thinking, and that way of thinking is like the ego, what I call the ego mind. It's like it's the controlling mind that says this is. This is a situation, this is the sort of way I need to solve it, and I can't see what to do. So what I what I do then is is I just is I step back a bit and I like to just in order to step out of my mind, I just sort of bring my attention to what I call the heart space. Just bring my attention down into the heart space. And then just to hold the question in my mind. Could there be another way of seeing this? Is there another way of looking at this? Without trying to find an answer. Because if I try to find an answer, it's the ego getting involved. But And then just wait to say, is there possibly another way of seeing this? And then just wait. And probably half the time, something comes which is a lot more compassionate. It has a greater sense of truth about it. I feel more at ease. And like this is coming from my deeper being. But what I have to do is almost like open the door to allow something in that I wasn't seeing. And the reason I wasn't seeing it because I my mind was down a certain track. I'm going to give you an example of one of the early times I played with this myself. I was, uh, I was having a, a difficult time with my partner at the time, you know, like many people do. And we'd sort of been, you know, in a sort of, uneasy state for a couple of days and things weren't that sort of smooth between us and you know I, I knew what she should do to change things I knew what she should do to make things better and she knew what I should do and we had our disagreements and I just sat down and I just asked myself this question you know is there another way of looking at this and it was in this case it was like instant it was like here is another human being with her you know, her background, her stuff, trying to cope with me, with my stuff. And it was just like a whole different understanding and just like love returned. I, I just felt, you know, ah, oh, just like a whole lovingness returned. And I realized, you know, we've been out of love for a couple of days. But all the time I was trying to remedy it by what she should do in order that, you know, we could get back to, you know, being in a more easy time. And she was in her thing of what I should do. And then just, you know, and it, in hindsight, it's so obvious, but you don't think of it when you're stuck in a certain way of thinking and just stepping out and just like, oh, yes, you know, here's another human being having her own challenges and I'm sure I'm a challenge for her. And it just, you know, there was more love. It just felt more ease. There was an obvious truthfulness to it. So so that's that's a practice I find very useful. I carry with me so when I'm ever in some situation where I'm not sure what to do or you know I just pause and just sort of drop into the heart space and just say okay 
is there another way of looking at this and just waiting sometimes it comes sometimes it doesn't but my attitude is there's no harm in asking it's kind of a different approach that i've been i've been trying something totally different and and that sounds quite interesting and i, and I think i'm going to apply that to some of the some of the problems that i come across in my own life um i've i kind of move forward in i make it i make some kind of a choice the best i can and i and i go with it and then kind of see how everything allow everything to unfold and then try to kind of go from there because i i find that 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 space of limbo or that in between is what really kind of um causes me to suffer mm-hmm. but i do find it very interesting when you know people share with me ways to get more in touch with that sense of love and compassion yeah. in life yeah because it's it's something that i think we could all use a little bit more of and it and it does become challenging at times yeah and my attitude is i think it's there it's it's a natural thing so we don't have to we don't have to develop compassion or develop love it's more we have to remove the things that are standing in the way of it and the things that are standing in the way of it is our, our fixed ways of thinking, our egos, that sort of thing. We need to get them out of the way, and the compassion reveals itself. It isn't something you have to create. It, it just It's there, but it's much quieter, and it's a much softer thing. And so it's like we have to stop our doing sometimes in order to just realize you know, how, how should we approach things. It's it's very hard to actually make take the action once we get to the point, even once we realize it sometimes. Like I find myself, like there's often that phrase, you know, make decisions based on love and not fear. And I've found myself at that point many times and it's it's usually very difficult to make that initial step towards love. Why do you think that is? I think because it's very, it's because we're trying to battle the fear. I think, and the, the, all the time the fear is controlling us. You know, all we're doing is sort of, often we're just switching from one fear to an, to another. Well, the thing about fear is behind fear is control. We want to be in control of the world. And fear is the fear of not being in control in one way or another. So I think we need to, you know, first of all, go deeper and we need to let go of the idea of being in control of anything. And if we can relax that attitude, and usually whenever there's a sense of control, there's a sense of tension in the mind because we're trying to do something, trying to make something happen. Our consciousness becomes becomes tight, it becomes constricted. I mean, that's how it feels to me. It's like my mind is my mind is tight or constricted. And if we can begin to relax that, begin to relax the mind, relax that tension, relax that constriction then I think the lovingness comes. Whereas I think if we're, if we're still in that control mode, we're trying to control things, so we're trying to, we're trying to find love, we're trying to control things and, and create love, which is not, you know, it's certainly a step in the right direction. It certainly helps. But I think it, it's easier if we could sort of step back and rather than trying to find a loving attitude is to let go of that controlling attitude, letting go of the ego, so that the lovingness just becomes more apparent. What, when you say let go, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, it's about, it's partly, 
not following it, but it's also it's also about not resisting. I think a, a lot of the time we actually we when we're holding on to something, there's a sense of resistance there. So, I mean, we talk about fear. If there's, if there is some fear, what what we normally think of as letting go is how do we, how do we get rid of the fear? Um, and to me, letting go is more about our relationship to it. And so, what I do with things like this. Or any, not just fear, but any, any form of um, uncomfortable feeling, is to actually open up to it, to let it in, to become more aware of it. So if if there were, if I had some fear that was going on, to actually rather than trying to sort of stamp it out or stop it happening in my mind, is to say, okay. What's going on here? And to say, what's it feel like in my body? What's it like? Oh, I see. I've got a tension here in my chest. Oh, I can feel this in my fingers. My jaw is tight. To actually open up to what is going on in the body, and then also open up to what is the story I'm telling myself. Or well, the story is, you know, if I don't get to this position, something bad is going to happen. Is that really true? So you actually open up to the fear, both. What you're telling yourself in your mind and what's going on in your body, and I find when I do that, time and again, the fear seems to dissolve. And so, I mean, I summarise letting go in this way as letting in and letting be, rather than trying to get rid of, is let in the experience, let in the experience of the fear, let it be there, and time and again, it just seems to somehow like. Metabolize and and change and become just begins to dissolve, and I think it's an old Carl Jung used to say, "What you resist persists," and I think it's the resistance of our uncomfortable experiences that keeps them in place. If we can stop resisting them and just open up, it's like saying hello to it. Hello, who are you? What's going on here? And just in that opening up. And it's a bit scary at first because you know, oh, if I open up to this fear, it's gonna, I'm gonna feel awful. It actually isn't like that, but there, there can be that sort of initial, you know, concern. But actually, when you get into it in a very open, neutral way, it just becomes more of a fascination. Oh, this is what's happening in my body. Oh, that's the story I'm telling myself. It's like, oh, okay, I see you. And once you, once you see it for what it is. It doesn't hold you anymore. It doesn't grip you. It's like I often say, when you shine the light of consciousness on something, it just it just dissolves in the light. So when you shine the light of awareness onto anything like this, it it just goes away. It's fascinating. It's quite fascinating. It's almost like the the pain or the fear is some kind of a indicator or a signal of something, and. And when you, I guess, look at it, or or you're you become aware of it, or shine that light onto it, like you put, I think that in some way allows you to use it and move forward rather than um, rather than make it worse. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned pain. I mean, pain pain is an uncomfortable experience, and it's meant to be. 
I mean, pain is like the organism's alarm bell going off. I'm talking here about physical pain, but it, it applies to emotional pain and things. But let's take physical pain. You know, if you've got a physical pain, it's an alarm bell going off saying, hey, there's something wrong. Attention, please. Um, what we tend to do is the opposite. It's like, oh, we take a painkiller or I'm got, we suppress it. We push it out the way which is the opposite of what it wants. And it's a bit like if a, if a fire alarm goes off in the house, you don't get a blanket and smother the fire alarm with a blanket to stop it being, because it's too loud. And it's just, you know, you say, hey, there's something up. And I think it's the same with pain. It's like, it's a call for attention. So rather than trying to dull it or take our attention away from it, I recommend is what I do, is do the opposite and say, okay, you're a call for attention, here is my attention. What's going on? Let me let me become more aware of you, whatever whatever it is. And, it, and it's fascinating, even with physical pains. You know, sometimes, you know, I might be just sitting and feeling a discomfort in meditation or something, and just allowing my awareness to get into it and explore it. Often, you know, sometimes I notice spontaneously my body wanting to shift and move a bit, and I realize, oh. There was some tense muscle there I wasn't aware of. Or sometimes it just, you know, a minute or two later, I wonder, oh, where's it gone? What pain? It's a, I mean, Again, it's just, as you say, it's, it's a really important principle of just saying pain. Pain is a call for attention. So let's let's give it attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, I'm going to jump around a little bit now. Um, because I want to get to speaking about this this connectedness that really fascinated me. I heard it on on one of your recent uh, talks, and it, and it really it was kind of something that's stuck in my mind ever since. As just I guess fun to play with or a nice thought to consider, and uh, it's it's kind of how everything is in some way connected. I was watching a I don't know I was on a plane and I was watching this. Uh, it was like a Netflix. Thing and it had Will Smith on there, and he was talking about how they were looking at the Earth from 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 space, and they were, they could see that um, the sands from the Sahara or something were like fertilizing the Amazon. Yeah, and how yeah. how the world was kind of interconnected, and that really got me interested in 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 that thought initially. Yeah. And then I heard you say something about it, and I've had other experiences that kind of connect to this as well. Um, would you be able to tell me a little bit about your perspective on 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 how that works? Yes, um, I know it's quite a large question. Yeah, but, um, but, uh, can you, also, can you remember which video of mine it was? Because there's several aspects of this. Uh, okay, uh, so I think you were talking about the seas being the blood, yeah, the yeah, Amazon okay, being yeah, the lungs. Yes, yes. Okay, I thought that was the direction you were going, but I just wanted to be sure. Yeah, this was this was really important part of my thinking quite a while back. There was something called the Gaia hypothesis. An English um, chemist, James Lovelock, put forward this idea that the whole Earth is like a living organism. Um, and Gaia, he called it Gaia, G-A-I-A, because that, that's the old Greek name for the Mother Earth. He called it the Gaia hypothesis. And the hypothesis is that the, the Earth itself, over time, functions as a single living system, and it seems to maintain the optimum conditions for life, even though you know, the output from the sun changes and lots of conditions change, it keeps itself in a sort of equilibrium that's the best balance for life under those conditions. 
just like we do. You know, we go out in the cold and the, the body changes and it warms itself up. It pumps the blood in a different direction. We go out, it's too hot. The body starts sweating. You know, we, we, keep the, we like to keep the body temperature, you know, around 98.5, whatever it is, and keep the salinity at a certain level. The body's a self-regulating system. And he was saying the earth is doing the same. And so this is, you know, as you say, so you can find various parallels like the rainforests are like the lungs of the planet because they're taking in the, the carbon dioxide and pushing out the oxygen. You can say the oceans are like the circulatory system. And you can draw lots of parallels like this in terms of the organism of the planet compared to the organism of the body. But what James didn't do was say, what is the role of people? On the planet you looked at you know other systems and it struck me you know we are a very important part of the biosystem these days because we're creating such a strong influence i mean people sometimes these days call this the hollow scene in terms of the geological age this is this is the time when human beings are really affecting or the so the anthropocene the anthropocene is like human beings are affecting the, the geology the climate etc and I realized what we are like is like, we are like the nervous systems of the planet because what human beings, what makes us different is that we are exceptional processors of information because we, we can speak. I mean, all animals communicate, but we can speak, we can record information, we can build up a scientific body of knowledge, we can share complex ideas with each other, we can transfer ideas across the planet. So we, we are like the nerve cells of the planet. And, and it's, I, I then started looking at parallels with how the brain develops in the fetus, how the nerve cells start wiring themselves together, and then how the complexity that arises in the, in the human being is the complexity of the information flow. After about three months, we don't grow many more nerve cells. They're, they're all there in the beginning but it's the complexity that increases. And it struck me that if you look at the human population, we've gone through this population explosion, which is now steadied out, or is steadying out, it seems. And then we're going through this process of interconnection with the internet. Um, when, when I was thinking about this, the internet was still in its infancy. It wasn't even called the internet then. But I could see that where we were going was this growing interconnectivity between people just like the cells in the brain do they become more and more interconnected and rather than just us talking to you know the, the people in our village we're now and this is now happening we're communicating with people around the world like you know we are now here and like through this podcast and through the millions of other things that are happening on the internet we're all sharing ideas together and so we're becoming a collective learning system and that's what i call the global brain or we are becoming the global brain of the planet so this is i think you refer to it as like a global awakening phenomena right yes yeah and and you you say that it's just accelerating yes yeah and um, everything is accelerating almost everything is i mean science is accelerating Technology is accelerating, as we all see in our lives. Um, also, the effects of technology on the planet, the sort of the pollution, these things are also accelerating. But also the global awakening, which is the awakening of conscious individual consciousness, 
is also accelerating. And what I mean by this is the number of people who are having the sort of realizations we're talking about in terms of you know, coming to connect with that inner sense of being, whatever it is, who are seeing, seeing things more deeply, opening up to the heart more. When I, when I first got interested in this, which was 50 years ago now, when I was at Cambridge, I started getting interested in Eastern religion and spirituality, consciousness. There were hardly any books on it. In fact, in you know the biggest bookstore, it was the second biggest bookstore in England then, the one in Cambridge, it had one shelf on sort of alternative ideas on spirituality, lots of shelves on you know Christianity and things, but very, very limited. And now you go into any you know modest sized town and you find bookstores full of books on you know consciousness and spirituality and things and not just bookstores you know talking about the internet you can find you know numerous videos of different teachers and all of this is people you know like me i i read stuff i did my own research i did my own inner research i wrote my own books produced my own videos you've seen some of the videos that cross fertilizes you know what you see in the videos you know, you then maybe talk to other people about that on your podcast. They take that information in, it helps them. And that may come back to me and I see something. So we're in this mutually catalyzing situation. And whenever you have that, it's called positive feedback in a system. Whenever you have positive feedback, the growth accelerates. You know, the classic interest is, you know, classic example is interest. You know, when you invest money at compound interest, it grows faster and faster and faster. And it's the same with the awakening of consciousness. The more, the more people that are awake, the more awake they are, the more they share that with other people, the more opportunity that gives for other people to awaken. Yeah, and so now we're seeing, you know, this has almost become mainstream now. You get, you know, cover issues of Time magazine on, on meditation. Corporations are teaching meditation, encouraging other corporations to take up meditation. It's become you know, a, a very common idea now. 50 years ago, it was very, very fringe, very fringe. So what I, role? Sorry, what were you saying? Sorry, I, mean, I, mean, just, I mean, just to say it was just to see how, how much it's accelerated over that 50 years from almost nothing to becoming mainstream. Mm. It's a phenomenal acceleration and it's going on. It's getting faster and faster and faster and more and more people, you know, good teachers appearing on the planet, good spiritual teachers are appearing in our culture because they're, they're waking up themselves. Mm. What role do you see psychedelics playing in, in the global awakening? They are, they are a two-edged sword, I think. They, mm -hmm. they can be very useful in terms of showing people there's more, there's more to reality than meets the eye or more to our conscious experience that meets the eye. And I think what can, what can happen on some psychedelics is people drop out of that ego mind. They drop out of that normal thinking mind and drop back into that quality of being. And that can be, you know, a deep spiritual awakening for people. And 
and that's valuable. I think the the other side of it though is is two things. One, if that does happen, it, then people can then start becoming dependent upon the psychedelic to go back and have the same experience, and so you start becoming dependent upon it. Whereas I think you know it should be like the psychedelic has opened a window onto the world, but then to step through that window, you then need to find some spiritual practice that allows you to do this regularly in daily life without becoming dependent upon it. Mm-hmm. And and the second caution I have is when I say that can happen, that does happen, that sort of deep inner awakening can happen on the psychedelic. But for a lot of people, it becomes having this, you know, oh, I saw this and I, you know, I saw the trees moving and whatever it was. And it becomes about having another experience, a fantastic, you know, unusual experience but it just becomes another way to just have more experiences and ultimately it's about stepping back from experience so and of course you know they can be they can lead people to you know develop you know psychotic states of mind as well so i think one has to be careful i think they need to be they can be used they can be used wisely in the right circumstances um but with, with caution. So I think with that, caution and respect. Yeah. With caution and respect, they, they have a valuable role to play if they are opening up your consciousness to that deeper sense of being. They can be valuable there, yes. But then but then having experienced that, then to let go of it and move on, it's like, ah, that that was a wonderful taste. And what it shows me is, you know, now I could work out how can I do this naturally without the psychedelics. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely something to be said about you know, not not holding on to these kind of experiences and and taking what you can and and, and applying them um, in in this version of reality, um, for sure, for sure. And I, can you could you elaborate a little bit more on the point of stepping back from experience? Yes, it's really what I was touching on before about relaxing the attention. So that what happens is usually if there's, if there's something that is interesting to us, the attention becomes focused on it. So if we're interested in um, a simple example, you know, watching, watching something that's going on in the world, you know, watching, watching a car or something or a bird or anything at all, you're watching something. If it's interesting, the attention becomes focused and when the attention becomes focused on something, the rest of the rest of the world sort of disappears into the background more. We we just see what we're focused on. I'm just kind of picturing someone on a on a cell phone right now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're on this, you're, yeah, good example. Thank you. So you're you're on the phone and you're listening to the conversation. You don't really notice the rest of the world. And that's why you can actually bump into things without realizing it make stupid mistakes. So your attention is focused on that. So it becomes very focused. Um, so when I say stepping back from experience, it's about allowing the attention to relax. And maybe maybe the cell phone here isn't quite the best example, but, um, but it's like whatever you're seeing or experiencing is letting the attention become soft. And as the attention becomes soft, you begin to take in more of the world. It, all, it becomes, you begin to notice maybe what 
you know, oh, there's sounds going on, there's birdsong I hadn't noticed, or there's sensations in my body I hadn't noticed. It's like allowing, allowing the focus of the attention to soften and expand. So when I say stepping back, it's about not being so focused or so attached or so involved in a particular point of it, but it's this more relaxed openness. When people talk about being in the moment, is that kind of the same thing? It's part of being in the moment, yes. Mm. Though even being in the moment, you can be focused on a part of the moment. So it's Mm. it's being in the moment, but being in, in a very relaxed, open way. And when you do that, then you'll find a, there's a greater sense of peacefulness and ease and contentment that comes when, when you let the attention relax like that. That makes sense. So what you were saying before about the exponential speeding up of things and um, you know things are only going to keep moving faster and faster, where does that lead to? What, what happens? Ah, we will find out. <laughs> um i guess i guess it's something we it's hard to predict things and there's something i I find there's some comfort in not knowing certain things we don't have to know everything we don't have to figure everything out right but i think where it's leading is into a a very different view of the future this is something i'm sort of working on at the moment you see most of our views of the future are very linear in terms of the rate of development. You know, people talk about, oh, what's a civilization going to be like a thousand years ahead of us or a million years ahead of us? And we're thinking in terms of current rates of development. We think, oh, we made this much progress in the last 50 years. The next 50 years is going to be the same amount the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And that's linear time. But it's, what is very clear is that the the time the intervals get shorter and shorter. I mean, we made maybe you know whatever the amount of progress in the last fifty years is probably the same as the last five hundred years, and that's probably the same as you know the last five thousand years or ten thousand years at the beginning of agriculture. So the speeding up is the rate of development is getting faster and faster and faster. So the intervals are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and so you know whatever happened in the last fifty years we're probably going to see in the next 10, 20 years. We have no idea where things are going to be, you know, 10, 20 years in terms of technology and artificial intelligence, where that's going to lead. And then, you know, after that, it's going to be even faster. So, you know, whatever civilization, when we think, you know, what's the civilization going to be like a thousand years ahead of us, that is going to be happening 50, 60, 70 years from now because because of the way time is getting compressed or development's getting compressed into shorter and shorter and shorter intervals. And so that changes our whole view of the future. We are heading faster and faster into something completely different. And at the same time, the we are noticing the stress of that acceleration. And that's what we're seeing in terms of you know the environment. Climate change, for example, is a direct result of the acceleration because we, our use of fossil fuels has accelerated to a point where the planet can no longer absorb the carbon dioxide that's produced. Now we're producing it now thousands of times faster than the planet can absorb. And many, many of the other things that are going wrong in terms of the environment and society are a result of the acceleration. So we've got two trends there together. We've got this explosive growth of science and technology 
and almost explosive growth of um, environmental degradation. And we've got this explosive growth of consciousness. And we've never been in that situation before. We're going to see how it plays out. It's going to be, I think, totally different from anything we've ever expected. And it's not going to be a smooth ride either. I think it's going to be exciting and scary. I think we're going to be living in a world in which we have technology beyond our dreams and a world that's breaking apart at the seams. We're going to have those two things together. Do you feel like the closer we get to that edge, uh, the more likely it is that, that people will, I guess... Uh, take some sort of action in the way that, you know, when someone has a near-death experience, they come to all these realizations and make big changes in their life? That is certainly a possibility on the horizon, yes. It's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. When people have these near-death experiences, they usually come back from that, you know, wanting to live in a very different way, a much more open, loving way, less less ego involved. And... I think and almost hope that could happen with humanity, that we have, as we get closer, it wakes us up. There's a, there's a waking up that goes on. What are some of the other possibilities in your mind? Um, that it, it could, that maybe, you know, this is, this is what happens to any, any technological civilization. It just spirals faster and faster and faster. And... It basically comes comes to an end. It's like we think that we should be here for, you know, thousands, millions of years because we are, you know, so intelligent and smart and technological. But maybe, you know, intelligent technological species are only actually here for a very short period of time. But in that short time, they can accomplish so much. So. You know, we, we could spiral faster and faster into a time where on a sort of environmental level we can't continue anymore you know we use people say we've become extinct I don't like the word extinct I say we complete our journey there's a completion and we become you know awake aware fully aware and that's it and that you know many people find that uncomfortable but it's but what I like to do is say if that is what's happening we should step back and actually say, wow, we are this incredible blossoming of consciousness, which happens, you know, maybe once in a planet's lifetime. It happens more and more rapidly. It's this sort of this flowering of consciousness and to just cherish who we are and what we are and let go of the idea that we should be here for a long period of time and say, no, maybe, maybe this is this bursting out of consciousness is what happens, but it doesn't have to continue. I think of this, you know, you know the century plant, those, you know, cactus, well, they're not cactuses, but those plants that they call a century plants, they take so long to bloom. They take about 20 years to bloom. They do nothing. And after 20 years, they suddenly put out this incredible flower. It's about 15, 20 foot tall, amazing flower. And, you know, we look at it and say, wow, look at that you know it took all that time to produce that but we don't say oh my god it's falling you know the petals are falling off we say wow wasn't that incredible and maybe we should say the same about ourselves we've taken you know we are this flowering of consciousness it's taken us you know human beings whatever it is 
you know, a couple of million years, and here we are now, suddenly this incredible blossoming of consciousness. And to really um, cherish it and value it and marvel at it and not hold on to the idea that it has to continue forever. Yeah, I think you can draw comparisons to what we spoke about earlier about psychedelics and, and, and in regards to living our own life as well. Um, and just allowing instead of trying to hold on to certain, certain right, things. Right, right. And yeah, and it comes back to the basic question of how do I live How do I live my life in a way that's fulfilling for me, that um, is in a more awake mode, I'm not so caught up in the ego, and how can I help other people so that they are not suffering so much how can i help other people and particularly if we're going through challenging times it's going to be even more important how do we help and care for other people as we go through these times so i think you know the real question is is yeah how how do we live our lives to the fullest and kindest i think you know the dalai lama once said our, his religion is kindness i think how can we how can we live here with each other in a way that we are kind to ourselves and kind to each other yeah it really comes back to that the point of non-duality that you mentioned earlier and us all being you know made from the same substance the 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 ceramic pots as you put it yeah Um, yeah we're, we're made yeah we're made from the same essence and we all want the same deep down we all want the same on the surface we want totally different things but deep down, we all want the same, which is we want to be, we want to feel at ease, at peace. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We all want the same deep down. It's just the way we want it is different. But if we can recognize that deep, deep down, we all want the same, I think that, that, is, that is the foundation of, of love and kindness. Thank you very much, Peter. I think that's a that's probably a great point to end things on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. It's been great chatting. Thank you so much for tuning into the first episode back of the Today Dreamer podcast. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if it feels right, uh, stay tuned because there'll be more episodes coming your way. I've also got a YouTube channel where you'll be able to access uh, more in-depth guides, more practical walkthroughs, when it comes to you know finding and building practices around clarity, developing your focus, and taking action in life. So if you're interested in that, check out the YouTube channel. There'll be links to everything I've spoken about with Peter today, uh, including a link to his website where you can check out how old you are in days, which is pretty cool, uh, on the Today Dreamer website, todaydreamer.com. Until next time, guys, be well and be mindful.